Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire that uh, you work in a mighty way in all these circumstances. And Lord, we uh, see the frailty of our flesh and our even our existence here, and we look forward to some of the things that were discussed earlier, the fact that you are coming when everything will be transformed and changed, and we look forward, and as even passage that we'll be looking at says that uh, even the creation anxiously waits for what you are about to do. Today we desire to, to even see that day when uh, you come in glory and you take us to be with yourself. So we commit our time desiring that we get a glimpse of that, that it will encourage us in our everyday living, that we may, in fact, in the meantime, be your lights, your salt, your instruments to reach a lost world. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Hey, we got a visitor today. Be sure and make him feel welcome. We have the newlyweds back as well. Do you have a report on your trip? It was amazing. We had beautiful weather. I've never seen fall. Good. Let's get into the book of Romans today. We're still in Romans 8. This passage deals with an area that everybody faces to some degree or another. In fact, there's a lot of things that we share in common as people, as human beings. And living in this lost and fallen world, all of us experience suffering to some degree. Some of us, like myself, don't suffer very much, but others suffer quite a bit. And there'll probably be a day when I do get run over by a dump truck and, you know. It's your home going day, so you don't suffer too Hopefully much. Hopefully the truck suffers for five seconds, yeah. But we all experience it, so it's good to know how to deal with it and understand it and know what God is doing. And in fact, this is a wonderful passage. It's a, it's an amazing passage. It has lots of elements to it. And we will only get to the beginning of it. And it has a lot to do with science, for example. We won't get into that part till next time. But it also deals with this very, very practical area that everybody experiences to greater or lesser degree. So we're going to look at, actually, kind of review verse 17, because it kind of transitions mainly into the next paragraph, which actually begins in verse 18. And I've got verse 21. We won't get that far today, but your outline reflects verse 21. So the title up there is more reflective of the whole outline there. And obviously, Christians have suffered in all time as well, not only today, but some Christians died on that very spot in the Colosseum. They were martyred for their faith. In fact, they were experiencing exactly what Paul is talking about here in the book of Romans, another shot from a different perspective of the same Colosseum. You all enjoyed the occasion, or not all, but some of you were able to visit the site. Mary was that going on, was that Colosseum built and being used for that purpose as Paul was writing, or did that follow shortly thereafter? I'm not sure what you're asking. She's asking if, if the Colosseum was built and in use at the time Paul was in Rome. It was under construction, because I think it was completed in like 79, I think. Okay. I know there's a 9 there. I don't think it was 69, 79, somewhere in there. Okay. And Paul had already been martyred. But he would have seen 
construction because it would have taken him several years just, before just that. I just wondered if, if that had, was uh, part of his focus as he was writing this. So they no, were, probably not. Okay. Probably not. But there was persecution. In fact, the uh, Christians were blamed for the burning of Rome, and there was a Neroan. Nero was this emperor. Uh, he imposed a lot of persecution. And this would have been, in fact, Paul died in that persecution. He was one of the martyrs. So that's part of what he would be There's so many layers to. that it's hard to know which layers kind of match up with each yeah. other and which were offset by 15, 20, 20 years or yeah. more. Yep, exactly. Yep, so right at the center of Rome, right at the center of the empire, there were believers not much different from you and I. So just a quick review, we're looking at sanctification. In fact, one of the principles we'll develop from this, one of the main instruments, I've got it written on your outline sheet, one of the main instruments that God uses to conform us to his image is, in fact, suffering. So sanctification, there's principles. We focused on nine of them in chapter 6. The principles don't stop, but the emphasis is on the issues that we get involved in trying to live the Christian life. There's some pitfalls, so I call them problems, mainly for alliteration here, but it's a good description. And we're in this great and glorious passage, chapter 8, where we have uh, the means by which God has provided that we can face whatever circumstance that we have to face whether it be suffering or rejoicing or whatever, there's power available to live moment by moment, power of the Holy Spirit. So that's been the focus. Quick review of some of the principles. The power of the Holy Spirit in us enables us to fulfill what God requires. Now, chapter 7 is attempting to obey God apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's just simply gutting it out, trying to obey what it says without any enablement. And we learn from that that the law does not have power. It has it has the ability to show us what is right, but it doesn't have the power, doesn't give us the power to be able to do what is right. And if we do try to do what is right without the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a very frustrating experience. And the chapter ends, wretched man that I am. Very, very uh, depressing thought. The other problem is trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, but that is unsuccessful as well. So there's power available, the power of the Holy Spirit, to fulfill what God desires. And I use fulfill there because that's the word that's used in Romans 8. So walking in the Spirit is the means by which God grows us, conforms us to his image. We saw that in the passage as well. We saw that a key is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So that's an emphasis of those verses as well. We have the Holy Spirit actually residing in us. We're never alone. We're never on our own. We are never without a resource to be able to face every circumstance. And that comes from an immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember in the context, it talks about Christ dwelling in us as well. Now, this passage doesn't have the Father, but I gave you other passages that speak of the Father indwelling us also. So we have the entire Trinity 
indwelling us to give us enablement to be able to live the Christian life. And we also saw there was one little hint of the idea that there is something that we need to focus on or do, you might even say. And it's not even a command, but he states it as a fact of basically we are, what was the little phrase there? Put to death the deeds of the body, putting to death. It's not in the imperative, but it implies a response. So we drew the principle that believers participate. Not that we are the ones that affect it. God is the author and God is the one that that does the sanctifying, but he doesn't force it on us. We're not robotic. It's not automatic. But in fact, we are called upon to respond. Just like salvation, we're called upon to trust what Jesus did on the cross. Salvation is just not bestowed automatically. When we trust, then we receive the blessing of salvation, so also sanctification. So believers participate, and we're in chapter 8. We've already looked at verses 12 through 17, the sonship of sanctification. 12 and 13 is where that obligation to the Spirit, that idea of participating in some way in our sanctification. It's not an obligation. I keep stressing it's not an obligation of gutting it out. Or, oh, I have to do these things, but it's an obligation in the sense of we have been given so much, so much grace bestowed upon us that we have a sense of I need to respond in the way that God desires. And we have a focus on the sonship of believers, a relationship. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship, a father-son relationship. 16 and 17, there's an adoption idea introducing the concept of not only grace, but emphasizing this this uh, family relationship. And that produces heirship. Once you're a member of the family, you are heirs. And we saw two aspects of that in verse 17. And just a quick review. If children, in other words, if we belong in the family, we are sons, uses both words, sons in the prior passage, children here, Heirs also. So we have heirs. What is that heirship in this context? There's other passages that expand it and give us lots of particulars in terms of the inheritance. This context, heirs of God, God himself. God has given himself to us. We belong to him and he as father is our inheritance. So all that he has and owns And if that were not enough, and fellow heirs with Christ. And I spent some time, I'm not going to go over it again, but I think there's a distinction between being heirs and the heirs of Christ because of the conditional statement that follows. In fact, I wouldn't put the comma after Christ. I'd put the comma after God. So we have two heirships, one that is by grace, that there's nothing that we do. And the second one, I think, is conditional on how we respond, particularly in the midst of suffering. You see that? And this goes along with the biblical concept that we've talked about several times. Bill has taught special studies on it himself, on the whole idea of rewards. Rewards are separate and distinct from salvation. Rewards are, in fact, you could say, earned 
or they're given on the basis of how we respond. They're given on the basis of our uh, obedience. And there's passages that tell us that you can lose your rewards. In other words, uh, you may not, you will not enjoy them in the millennial kingdom. Similarly, there's an aspect of inheritance, and I gave you four things last time that describe four aspects of this whole concept of inheritance. We looked at several passages. If you do word studies on all the words related to the word group, you see these different aspects. We brought them out. One of them is much of our inheritance, like that that is in this context, is by grace. We don't deserve it. It's given freely. It's it's given at the moment of salvation. Cannot be lost. So it has all of the same elements. In fact, salvation is part of that inheritance. We saw a couple of passages relating to that. But then there's a second aspect. Above and beyond what is freely given as a gift that is related to how we respond. And I think we either enjoy that in the millennial kingdom or we can lose out. We saw some parables and some other examples. So if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now in the Greek, it calls attention to three words there that I'll show you in a moment. But while we're looking at the verse, fellow heirs, one word. If indeed we suffer with one word, co-suffer. So you have co-heirs, co-suffers, and then that we may be glorified with him. Glorified with, one word. Co-glorification or glorified whatever. Three words, I'll show them to you in a moment. Kind of a summary of what we've been looking at. Before we are believers, we're slaves. Slaves to sin. In fact, ultimately saved slaves of Satan himself. Salvation brings us into a relationship of sonship. And that's what Romans is stressing. That brings us to having a, not only a position, but a possession of heirship that gives us an inheritance. Some of it we can tap in here and now. It is ours. And we saw the concept in the Old Testament, the children of Israel possessed the land. It's pictured as an inheritance, but they were in the land, they owned it, they received the crops from it, the fruit of the the trees and the nuts and everything else. They enjoyed the blessing of the land, even though it was an inheritance. So there's that present tense aspect as well. And there's also this future aspect. So there are things that we can claim as our possession, like a bank account here and now. So, and there's a future aspect. The way it talks about it is that you go from slaves of sin to slaves of God. Yes. I mean, because well, as, you, as a slave, you obey your master, and God's our master. Right? Yes. And we obey. His... Yeah. That's the last part of Romans 6, exactly. It's a different slave ship, but it's a family relationship, sonship. Yeah. Yeah, he's reminding us of the end of Romans 6 there. Exactly. And it all leads to a future aspect. I summarize that with glory, because that's the word that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 8. Here's the three words. Begins with co-heirship. And there's the Greek one, if you want it. Sugkleranomoi. Plural. I've got it in the plural there. Co-heirs. That leads to, and in fact, if, Here's the conditional aspect. 
co-sufferers. Notice that each of these has a preposition prefixed, which gives you the idea of together with or with something. So we are co-heirs or we are heirs with Christ. That's what was put in Romans 8. If we are co-sufferers, suffer with Christ, being part of what he is working in us, and notice the sigma, upsilon, generally it's an N sound, but depending on the spelling, it can be an M or it can be a G sound as the first one. So co-heirs and co-sufferers leading to co-glorified or glorification. And notice again, it has the soon prefix there. In fact, the soon doesn't change in that passage. So it's just one word in the Greek text with the idea of together with. And we have these three things that we share. We're co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his suffering, and if we are faithful in that, we will share in his glory as well, the full glory. And this is resurrection glory of Jesus Christ. Now, he was sinless, so he doesn't lose anything, but we have the potential, if we're not faithful, to lose some of that inheritance. And beginning in verse 18, this is where we want to begin today. Now we're going to deal with suffering in sanctification. And it's given to us in the most positive way. It uh, almost overlooks it, but it permeates the passage. And what Paul is doing here is he, he doesn't want us, and by the way, this is what we are to do in the midst of it, is keep our mental focus on those things that are true, those things that are real. And that's what we have in Romans 8. We have indicative sentences, in other words, facts, things that are factual throughout this passage. There's only four commands, and they're all in chapter 6. Everything else is, these are the facts. These are the things that we need to keep our minds and our focus on, particularly when our experiences are causing whatever emotions, whatever else is going on, kind of distracting us from what is reality. This is reality, and that's what Paul is doing. We need to have this future focus, no matter what we're going through. So, he's going to talk about suffering and sanctification from a very optimistic, positive viewpoint, but this is the reality. And he's going to use, he's going to introduce what God is doing in the broadest sense that you can think of, in terms of the whole universe. And we're going to talk about science next week. I've already told you that. So, 18 through 27 is a long paragraph. We have a future hope in suffering. So immediately, we know there's going to be an end. And sometimes we recover from an illness. And that may be an end to that particular suffering. But there's going to be an ultimate end, and that's the focus of this passage. But even the temporal and short term, if you're struggling with a certain area right now, it's not going to always be this way. There's going to always be an end and there's always going to be an ultimate end. And we need to keep that focus in order to respond rightly to the suffering that we're experiencing. So there's a future hope in suffering, 18 through 27. And then verse 18 is the, and I'm using A as an alliteration, so antithesis to suffering. 
So let's look at uh, verse 18, and I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and focus on the first word there. For I consider, that's a thinking word. In fact, it's a mathematical word. I'll kind of describe it more. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In fact, I like the way one writer describes it. He says, our suffering is like a drop. The glory that we anticipate is like an ocean. And that's the comparison he's making. So our suffering, as intense as it may be, as painful, as even destructive as we see it doing damage, it's like a drop. But there's a glory that awaits us, and even a greater glory as we're faithful in the midst of that. It's like an ocean. So that's the thrust of it. So he starts off with the most positive viewpoint that you can think of concerning suffering is there's no comparison to what God has blessed us with. And this is unconditional. In other words, we will not lose the bulk of that glory that he has in view here. So when he says, I consider, what do you suppose that Greek word is? We've seen this several times already. In fact, 15 times, I believe, in the book of Romans already. We did an extensive word study on it. Does anybody remember what it is? Maddie's looking it up so she'll know. Yep, you got it. Logizomai. Logizomai. Potios, I thought he got it. (laughs) Yep, we've we've looked at this word. And I've mentioned several times, there's the Greek word and the Greek transliteration. It's a very important word. It's one that we saw in chapter 6, when it talks about the principles that he's laid out. The first exhortation is, he's using this word in the imperative. In other words, this is how we're supposed to focus. And in that context, it's telling us, basically... This is what we need to consider as true. In other words, this is what we need to believe. We need to believe all that what God has done to be able to cope with whatever situation we find ourselves. So the term logizomai is related to the idea of logic. In other words, thinking rationally, processing the information, the circumstances, the situation. Lagos, logic, the idea there. It's a mathematical term. In the secular world, this word would be used in a mathematical context, taking in all of the data. You could even say a scientific word. Taking in all the data, making your calculation, and coming up with a calculated result. After you put all the numbers into the formula, you come up with a calculated result. (laughs) Here's the calculated answer. That's the idea of this word, and it's kind of its uh, basic everyday usage. It's used in accounting. You take in all of the profits, subtracting all of the debits. You come up with an accounting at the very end, and this is the result of that calculation. That's the idea behind the word. So in this context, and some of the others that we saw in the book of Romans, it could be used... Philemon, when we were back in chapter 6, I gave you Philemon 18. The idea of co-signing, in other words, putting your name to a definite legal document here. The word logizomai is used in that context. 
It's to consider something or regard it. This is in its broad sense outside of science and math and accounting. To consider, to regard, or to reason something as true. And in the case of biblical concepts, they are true. Because God has stated them, this is ultimate reality, no matter what what your feelings may be telling you. No matter what your unbiblical thinking is trying to convince you, the biblical truths, we regard or consider them to be true. Now, we're not going to look these up. When we did the word study initially, I just gave you some examples of how it's used in this this way to consider, and sometimes it might be translated consider like it is in the Romans passage here, Romans 8.17, or regard something or reason it out. You might even say, after you've made all your calculations, this is what is true. This is what is reality. It can also be used to include or to be numbered with something, the usage there. It can be used in a theological way. We've looked at all of this before. It can be used in the sense of crediting something, in this case, spiritually. That's that accounting idea, except rather than uh, crediting to a financial account, it's crediting something spiritually. And we saw this, especially in Romans chapter 4. In fact, we looked at this word at that time and developed the concept of imputation. In fact, that's the concept. The term logizomai has the idea of to impute something or to credit something spiritually. The example that we used from Romans, in fact, it's used like 11 times in chapter 4 from verse 3 all the way to verse 24. The beginning of the passage, beginning in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? And this is after Paul in chapter 3 has developed the concept of justification by faith He's going to use Abraham as his prime example. And notice what it says. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. The word was credited. The verb is logizomai. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited. There's the same word as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In the place of faith, what is put into his spiritual account is righteousness. Then it goes on in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So it's used in that spiritual sense, and there's other passages as well, theologically. Now, we also develop very quickly here, sin is imputed on man from Adam, Adam's sin. This is in Romans 5, verse 13, the concept of imputation of sin on man. But an interesting passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where sin is imputed on Christ. Now, the term does not occur in that context, but let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God placed sin upon Christ or imputed it upon him 
And then he paid the penalty so that we would not have to pay the penalty and we could receive the righteousness of God. So that's logizomai. And then again in chapter 3, 21 through 26, that concept of righteousness imputed that precedes Romans 4, where Abraham is the example. Same word that we have in uh, 8.18, for I consider or I have come to the conclusion, I have reasoned, I have uh, accounted this to be true, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in this context, he introduces this idea. In fact, he follows up from the idea in verse 17, the concept of suffering. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at this, and this will give us a start on this great passage. We'll continue when we come back next week. But first of all, the term that's in this context for suffering in verse 18 is the term pathema. There you have the uh, Greek word and the transliteration occurs 16 times in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at the usage. We'll come back to this term. But let me just start by secondly on our slide here. Notice it's a different word from the one that we saw in verse 17. It It's a different root. Paskomai is the verb there with the prefix sum. In other words, suffering together. It's the the continuation of the idea of suffering for Christ. And now he's going to expand that using a different term. So in verse 17, we have the co-suffering with Christ. And now he's going to explain something of that in verse 18. And he's making this great contrast. It's like a drop, as we said, in comparison to the glory that is like an ocean. In other words, there's no comparison at all. Minimize our current sufferings. Because I've been just looking at the concept of suffering, that proper perspective, that it doesn't minimize our suffering. No, it doesn't minimize our suffering. Right. As huge as this glory is, it does not, as Bill points out, minimize our suffering. Our suffering is real and sometimes very intense, but in comparison, there is no comparison. And at the same time, not minimizing the suffering that we experience. Very good, Bill. But we, before we go back to the term, in fact, we're not going to have time to look at too many details concerning the term, but that's where we begin next time. Let's talk a little bit about reasons why we suffer These are biblical reasons, reasons why we experience suffering. And I break them down into at least five different categories. And I think there's differences in each one of them. But uh, first of all, we have the passage in Galatians 6, 7. And keep in mind, this is in the context of believers. So he's talking about believers. In fact, these reasons I'm giving you, these are the reasons why believers suffer. Now, we could talk about the unbeliever, but I want to focus on why we as believers suffer. So in verse 7, notice it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now it goes on, For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. 
but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now he's going to go on and expand upon reaping and sowing, but we have the contrast. In other words, what he's saying, if we reap things relating to the flesh, we're going to suffer the consequences of that. Now that's a general principle, and there's lots of examples that expand that and demonstrate that sometimes we suffer simply because of the wrong choices that we make. Now, that's not what is in view in the passage beginning in verse 18. Now, there's a second reason why the believer experiences suffering. Sometimes the believer can go off in the flesh, following up from the Galatians passage, and in that he is heading in a direction that ultimately is going to be not only destructive, but harmful perhaps to others as well. So God intervenes and brings discipline. Now, this is for correction. This is not punishment. This is to correct and to change the course of a believer that perhaps is heading in a direction that is not good. And again, the the Hebrews passage in the context dealing with the believer In fact, it uh, has some similarities to our Romans passage in that the analogy is that of a father and a son, and a good father disciplines the child. And in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3, we won't read it all the way to verse 13. Let me just read the first verses, and it'll give you a sense of what we're talking about. So sometimes God intervenes to bring discipline, and it's always for correction. Now, verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, remember the readers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish people, Jewish believers that were experiencing persecution. So in this context, he says, not to grow weary. And he says, even verse four, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. In other words, they have not suffered physically under that persecution. And then notice verse five, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. There's the father-son relationship. And he scourges every son whom he receives. So it can be severe. The discipline can be drastic if it need be. Then verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And we could read on, but I think you get the idea here. This is what a good father will do because he sees the destructiveness of a path that a child may be heading and discipline is the corrective action. So in the spiritual walk, sometimes the Lord will intervene to bring discipline in order to correct. And the text tells us, because he loves us. It would be not loving to allow us to go in a destructive path. So one of the reasons is that God uses discipline to correct. Similarly, on the positive side, 
Number three, another reason why we suffer, sometimes God is simply refining us in order to mature us, in order to to bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ. Now, notice the key passage here is James 1, and let's begin in uh, verse 2, and I'll read verse 3. Keep in mind there's several passages that we could include in all of these categories. I'm just giving you representative passages for the sake of time. James 1, 2, consider it all joy. In fact, we should rejoice, especially if we know that what God is producing in us is for our not only our benefit, but he's refining us, conforming us to his image. And notice what it says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. These are tests to produce qualities. And the first thing that's noted is endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, maturity. So sometimes suffering causes us to grow and moves us in the direction of maturity. You've heard me use the illustration from athletics. Every athlete and every sports team, you'll go through training. In fact, you spend a whole week preparing for the big game. And most of that training is painful. It's not pleasant. But you know that if you train well, and the more you train and the better you train, the more prepared you are for the game. And then when you're in the game, you suffer even more because you have the opposition now. And the opposition is sometimes much more stressful and more difficult than any of the practice. And you're suffering, but your focus, and that's the point here, you have a different focus. You're focusing on executing and accomplishing certain goals within that competition because your purpose is if you execute as a team, in fact, follow through on all of the practice, then uh, you will be successful in terms of reaching your short-term goals, which may be a first down and ultimately a touchdown and ultimately winning the game. But you go through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain to get there. You don't focus on the pain. You know, that's just part of it. Your focus is the outcome. And that's what we have here in our passage in Romans. So three reasons. First one, we might suffer simply the consequences of our own sin. And there's no benefit from that. And secondly, we may receive God's discipline. And it's always corrective. Or thirdly, sometimes God refines us. And he uses suffering to do that. Now, number four, usually I leave it for last, but I'm going to leave the one that I think is the primary reason here in our context. I'll leave that one for last. But fourthly, there are some areas where we suffer and we'll never know the answer. We'll never know and it will remain unknown. And for those, we uh, Perhaps stop asking God and just simply trust him. The prime example is the entire book of Job. And if you remember, Job is trying to figure out why he is experiencing suffering. 
And remember, the book identifies him. In fact, God himself identifies Job as a righteous man. So we know from the very beginning that it's not as a result of sin necessarily in Job's case that he's suffering, even though his three friends come and try to give an explanation. And the essence of all three of them is there has to be something, Job, some hidden sin, some maybe unknown sin. There has to be some relationship to sin in your life. Maybe you're hardened, maybe, you know, lots of reasons. And we have that exchange between the the three so-called friends, takes the bulk of the book. But the point of the book is, no, none of these. That's not the reason. In fact, we even have a fourth individual that comes and he takes a different tact. But essentially, he's trying to come up with a reason for Job. But Job, at the end of the book, is encountered by God. And what does God do? God doesn't give him an answer. Instead, what God does is he points to his greatness and he asks him a series of questions to elicit from Job an understanding of God's greatness. So he asks him all these scientific questions and asks Job, do you know the answers to all these things? And obviously Job does not. And what he's communicating to Job is if I am able to create all of these things that you cannot even explain, how a fetus grows in its mother's womb, how I've set up the constellations, and you can't give answers to all these issues, and if my greatness is such that I can do all these things, can't you just simply trust me? And can you just simply trust me with the pain that you are experiencing? And that's the bottom line. The arching principle is that God is bringing glory to himself. Yep. I think it is very helpful to reread the last three chapters of Tim asked about God. Right. Because God fundamentally told Yep, don't have a need to know. Job never gets an answer, but Job at the end simply trusts in God, and God rewards him basically with restoration. Now, we don't know who the author of the book of Job is, and it's probably not Job. And if it's not Job, then uh, Job never had the benefit of the first two chapters. The first two chapters give us as readers God's reason why Job is suffering. Job never has the benefit of knowing what God is doing. Job is simply to trust We know that God is doing something in the spiritual realm with Satan and probably demons and angelic creatures that are unseen, and God is doing something and teaching them some things using Job as his instrument of instruction for them, but Job doesn't know that. Job is left without an answer. So some of our suffering may be of that category. Now, the fifth reason, that's probably the primary reason that we have in view in uh, verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 8, because he's talking about co-suffering with Christ. And now he's taking it in verse 18 and saying that suffering is like nothing, nothing worthy to be compared with it compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. 
we could describe that category of suffering or that reason for suffering as suffering for righteousness sake. In other words, we're suffering simply because we're believers, simply because we're proclaiming the name of Christ, simply because we are associated with Christ and Christ promised that those that in fact align themselves with him would in fact suffer. And that's the essence of what it means to be a co-sufferer with Christ. We're suffering for righteousness sake. Christ never suffered as a result of consequences of sin because he was sinless. He experienced the consequences of a fallen world, but he never suffered consequences for sin. He suffered for righteousness sake in order to take the penalty that you and I deserve. And we can experience suffering in a similar way. Key passage is 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. In fact, there are several passages in 1 Peter that we could look at because suffering is one of the major themes of the whole book of 1 Peter. He's writing to another audience that is under persecution in the first century. But notice this passage is one of the clearest ones. There's others that we could look at, but notice verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In other words, we should not be surprised if we're believers. In fact, if we're not suffering, we might even think in terms of another statement that Paul makes that all will suffer if, in fact, we are in Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us. Then he goes on, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, this is not an unusual thing. This is part of living in a lost world. This is part of being associated with Jesus Christ. And then verse 13, but to the degree that you share, and here it is, this is the context that we have in Romans, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, similar to what James said, Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory. That's the context that we have in uh, verse 18. Cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. So verse 13 of 1 Peter, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So he anticipates this future rejoicing. And then he goes on in verses 14 and on to expand on this whole concept of suffering. So here are five reasons why we suffer. The primary one that is in the context of 8.18 is for righteousness sake, suffering along with Jesus Christ. And back to 8.18, this is the suffering that he's talking about. In present time, that is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, our time is up, but I'm going to expand upon next week a little bit further on the word that is used in verse 18, pathema, and expand on Christ's sufferings. And there's several passages in view there that we'll look at. We'll look at Philippians 3.10, Hebrews 2. 9 and 10, etc. And then we want to look at some other passages that speak of us sharing in that suffering to expand upon what he's talking about, not only in verse 18, 
but to be able to set the stage for what he's going to say in verses 19 and 20. But this is a good place to stop since our time is up. So let me conclude with a final thought, and then we'll uh, have our closing prayer. Now, we need to walk in the Spirit, especially in suffering, because that's where we have the enablement to be able to handle it. Otherwise, we can't handle it. It wipes us out. So we need to walk in the Spirit, especially in those times of suffering, no matter how severe. Bill, why don't you, since you're... Father God, we're just really grateful that you have spent so much effort to get your scriptures to us, as you dictated them to your prophets. We're so grateful that you wrote your scriptures for our understanding. You did not write them to be hidden. You wrote them for our understanding, to transform us closer to God. We're so grateful for that. We ask you to continue that process. Continue reaching through your scripture to transform us to be like Jesus. And may we continue to look through your scriptures to see you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week.